Bible, open up with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to start off today and we're going to talk about a word that not, is not often mentioned in churches. It's actually a, a Christianese word. Do you know what Christianese is? It's a special language that only Christians understand. Right? And no, we're not talking about tongues. We talked about that last week, so we don't need an interpreter for it. But uh, Christianese are words or phrases that Christians often say that if you didn't grow up in church or you're unfamiliar, you might be like, wait, what? What, is that? what does that mean? So let me give you some examples of Christianese terms. How about this one? A hedge of protection. Anybody know what that is? And no, it's not Trevor's mustache. A hedge of protection is when you ask the Lord to surround you with his angels to protect you on anything that you're, you're working on. How about this one? Fellowship. Like, we're going to get together and have some fellowship. What does fellowship mean? You're like, is that like a boat with a bunch of dudes on it? Like, look at those fellows on that ship. Um, no, it just means like Christian community, hanging out, having a little Bible study, enjoying each other's company. How about this one? Washed in the blood. That sounds like a horror movie, doesn't it? She was washed in the blood. Was oh, this Carrie? Like, what's going on? Right? No, washed in the blood just simply means you've been forgiven. Like, the blood of Jesus has forgiven you. You've been washed in the blood. H how about this one? Um, a love offering. Okay, so next week, Lance is coming in. He's going to preach. And if I were to say, hey, next week, um, we're going to give Lance a love offering. You're like, ooh, that sounds weird. Um, <laughs> A love offering? What kind of church is this? Like, I thought, uh, no, thank you. Where's the Kool-Aid? Is this a cult? Like, everybody's just getting together, giving each other love offerings. All right. No, here's what a love offering is. It's when the church cannot afford to pay the guest speaker, and so they pass the plate. Uh, that's what a love <laughs> offering is. Okay, and no, we're not taking up a love offering for, for Lance. Um, but either way, uh, and so these are different words and phrases that Christians use that many people don't understand. Today we're going to look at another one of those words, and it's this word right here. Pentecost. Now, the moment I say the word Pentecost, immediately you're thinking Pentecostal. And the first thing that comes to your mind is long dresses, big hair, and people who don't tip. So your, your first, that's your first thought. Hey, I just preached the truth, all right? And let's just say it. I, I worked at Chili's for eight years, I know. So because of our connotation, because of our background, because of our experiences here in Southeast Texas, that's typically the first thing that we think. And so when we teach on Pentecost or we talk about being Pentecostal or we talk about the gifts of the Spirit or the baptism of the Spirit, immediately the first thing is like, whoa, nope, nope, nope. I just started liking this church and now y'all getting weird. Right? I, I don't, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to associate with that because you have these preconceived notions around this word. But what I want to do today is I want to take this word, redeem it. I want to step back and I want to look at it from a biblical perspective. Because here's the reality is that the word Pentecost is not Pentecostal. The word is actually biblical. It, it's found in the Bible. And so we need to understand what it means so that way we can apply it to our life. Look, here's what we studied last week, Acts chapter 2, 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, okay, it's biblical. They were all gathered together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound of a mighty rushing wind, filled the entire house where they were sitting, divided tongues of fire, appeared to them, and rested on each and every one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now listen, this is what's called a Bible. Right? This is God's word. This word is true. It's trustworthy. It doesn't just tell us what happened. It tells us what happens. It tells us who God is, what God did, and how we can live our life for him. As Christians, we submit under the authority of the word of God. That, that God's word is the final rule on how we are to live our lives. Here's another way to say it. That if the Bible says it, we believe it, that settles it. Yeah, we're one of those churches, all right? And so here's what you need to understand here at Redemption. If it's in the Bible, we believe it. If, if it's in God's word, then it's for our good. We, we believe in the Bible. And Pentecost is not just a Pentecostal word. It is a biblical word, which means we need to understand it because it's going to have a profound impact on the way in which we do church. And so today, if you would please just do me a favor, I want you to take off your Awana's blue ribbon from Sunday school that you got for coming in first place in the sword drills and set it aside. If you would just do me a favor and just, just set aside your denomination, set aside your affiliation, set aside all of these things for just a moment and let's go back to the Bible and let's see what the Bible actually says about this word 
Pentecost. And so here's the sermon title today is what is the meaning of Pentecost? And he's going to show us five things about Pentecost that many of us, we, we don't really understand, or maybe we need to be reminded of. So the first thing we're going to learn about Pentecost, number one, is the point of scripture. Here's how it starts off in verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? They were amazed and perplexed. Why? Because they heard a whole bunch of people speaking in tongues. They're like, this is crazy. What's going on? What does this mean? Now, throughout the text, what you're going to see is you're going to see multiple scriptures that are going to be Old Testament references that keep continually being brought up over and over again. In fact, the verses that I just read in the line above, they are actually Old Testament references. And in order to be able to understand the new, you got to understand the old. Or the way that I say it here is in order to understand the text, you often have to understand what? The context, because we're not just picking and choosing verses. If you're new to redemption, you got to understand that we are an expository church, which means we walk verse by verse through lines and books of the Bible. So here we are, we're in Acts chapter 2. It's the sixth week of the series. It's 28 chapters, which means we're going to be here a while, all right? And so we're walking through, and in order for us to understand the text, we have to step back, and we have to understand the greater context of what's happening. But even then, there's some passages of Scripture where just the lines above and below isn't enough for you to understand. You actually have to step even further back and get a 50,000-foot view to be able to actually see what's happening. And what we recognize here is that the first Pentecost wasn't 2,000 years ago in Acts chapter two, the first Pentecost goes all the way back to Exodus 34. All the way back to the first five books of the Bible because Pentecost was actually an old covenant festival that God desired and required for his people to participate in. It was an Old Testament festival um, in, in Acts chapter 24, Deuteronomy 16, and Leviticus 23. And so the people, as we're reading this, many of you, you feel exactly the way that, that they feel. You're like, okay, well, what does all of this mean? See, originally, Pentecost was a Jewish festival. It, it was a festival that God created, and it was designed to take place 50 days after Passover. Pentecost literally means 50. It was 50 days after Passover. What is Passover? Well, it was another festival celebrating that the angel of death passed over the people of Israel. That if you were to take a, a lamb and you were to, to, to have it as a sacrifice, take the blood, put it over the doorpost, then the death angel would pass over and you would be set free, liberated from Pharaoh into the promised land, from slavery into freedom. And so after Passover comes out, God tells them on the 50th day, I want you to celebrate this Pentecost. Well, what is Pentecost? Well, it says that it's a, it's, a, it's a festival of harvest. It's a celebration. You would present the first sheath of the new harvest as an act towards the Lord, and you would celebrate what God did on that day. And so what we actually see is it's the same day that God gave Moses the law. So here's what happens is that God uh, calls Moses up to the mountains, and he goes up to the top of Mount Sinai, and as he's up there praying, all of a sudden, the clouds and the, and the clouds fill around the mountain, and you see fire, and you see lightning, and you see wind, and the whole mountain is basically set on fire. And God meets with Moses, and then Moses comes down. His face is radiant and changed. As he comes down the mountain, he delivers the law. So what we're seeing here in Pentecost is very, is very similar to what we read also in Exodus as well. But this time, instead of God giving the law, what is God doing? God is giving the Holy Spirit. And here's a fulfillment of the prophecy in Jeremiah 33, where it says that God will put his spirit inside of us, and he will write the law on our hearts by his Holy Spirit. So you need to understand that when we read this section, it's not just an isolated event, but rather it is a culmination of thousands of years of prophecy throughout all of the Old Testament. But there's something interesting, a little bit more than that. Not only are there prophecies in the Old Testament, there's another theological word. By the way, there's going to be a lot of theological words in this sermon. So you get your money's worth, I'll give it to you for free. Here we go. So there's something called a typology. What is a typology? It is an Old Testament symbol that is un only understood in light of the New Testament. It's an Old Testament symbol that on its surface, you're like, well, that kind of seems strange. That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Well, what does that mean? And then you begin reading the New Testament, and you're like, oh, that's exactly what that means. Pentecost is actually a typology. I already showed you one. Exodus 34 is symbolized and typo typologized in 
Acts chapter 2. But even the ingredients that make it all up is what the typology is. So it talks about the wind, right? So it says the wind rushed into the house. Well, what is that? Well, in the Old Testament, wind symbolized the Holy Spirit. And so the word ruach is the Old Testament word for Holy Spirit, which means the, the wind. And the New Testament word is the word pneuma, which means breath. And so anytime you, you see those words, whether it be wind or breath, I want you to understand that's the Holy Spirit. So in Ezekiel 37, whenever he prophesies over the dry bones and there's a great wind that comes and brings them to life, that wind is actually referencing the Holy Spirit, bringing us back to life through his indwelling. It's the wind. So when you read here, the wind, that's the Holy Spirit showed up. The other thing is fire. Fire is symbolic of, of God's approval and God's presence. There are nine occasions in the, Old, in the Old Testament where a person would make a sacrifice and fire from heaven fell down. And it was saying that God approves of this sacrifice. Well, here we see that there's fire resting upon their heads. And what is God saying? I approve of these apostles to be the establishing of the early church. It was an approval of the men in which he's called to be able to be the founders of the Christian church. That's the one. And then the other thing is, back in the book of Exodus, Moses sees a burning bush. Well, the bush was on fire, but yet it was not consumed. These men, it was not an actual fire that was on their head, but rather it was the glory of God. It was his presence that was with them. And so there was fire, but yet they were not consumed. Very similar of the old covenant of what God did for Moses. And then there's tongues. You say, well, that's interesting. Tongues, that sounds crazy. Like, I've never read about that before. Well, you have, you just didn't notice it. Because there's a story in Genesis chapter 11 called the Tower of Babel. Some of you are familiar with this story where here's what's happening. Men, they think they can make their way to God. They become very proud. They become very arrogant. They don't want to worship God. They want to worship themselves as God. They want to dethrone God. So they build a big tower and they start trying to climb their way to heaven. And it says this in Genesis chapter 11 that God came down and confused their languages. So what's happening in Acts chapter 2? Well, God's coming down, but instead of confusing their languages... He's uniting them. And then it says in Genesis 11 that he divided the nations. What's happening here? Everyone's hearing them speak in their own native language. God is uniting the nations. It's a reversal of the old covenant because we're entered in now into a new covenant. That, that God has doing something new. That God is bringing about something new. That the new covenant, the, the relationship between men and God has been restored and, and, and reconciled and brought back together. And so what we see at Pentecost is something that is very profound and very powerful. What you need to understand when you read the Bible is that every story points to his glory. See, the story of God reveals the glory of God. Like when we're reading the Bible, it's not just a couple of verses that are about us. No, 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 no. It's not about us. The Bible was written for us, but it's not written to us. Ultimately, the Bible is about God and who he is and what he does and how he can save and change anybody. And when we read the Bible, we shouldn't walk away saying, man, we're so amazing and we're so awesome and I'm so great. No, what we should walk away saying is God is so awesome. God is so amazing. God is so great. Look how glorified he is. Look how wonderful and powerful and majestic and mighty he is. Look what our God does. Does. Oh, the story of God reveals the glory of God. So from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, it's all about the glory of God. From the table of contents to the maps in the back, it's all about the glory of God. Because God deserves all of the glory. And so we're learning through the Bible, first thing is this, is, is the point of the scriptures. The, the second thing we see is this. We see the power of the Holy Spirit. But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. They're, they're basically saying, oh, look at them. They're drunk. Look at them speaking in tongues. Like speaking in cursive like y'all do on Friday nights, just slurring the words. <laughs> look, look what it says here. Like it says, uh, they, were, they were calling them drunk, but I love this verse. Favorite Bible verse. I'm going to put it on a coffee cup. Verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice. What's he doing? He's preaching. And addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you. And give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk. We're not drunk like you think we are. It's only nine in the morning. He says, it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what is uttered through the prophet Joel. In a moment, he's going to preach. But he starts off what is the first sermon ever recorded in all of church history by telling a joke. He's telling a joke. They're saying, you're drunk. And he just 
ignores them, and he just says, no, we're not drunk, listen to me. Right? He's telling a joke, which I love this because at Redemption, we like to have fun. We like to have a little bit of fun. Like, we like to put the fun back in fundamentalism. We like to have a little bit of fun here. And, and what I, I think it's so important that we should be able to tell jokes in church, to laugh in church, to enjoy ourselves in church. And we shouldn't take ourselves too serious. We should take God more serious, but we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously. He, he starts off by, by telling a joke because every good sermon needs a good introduction. And now he's got their attention. And now that he has their attention, he's going to go and he's going to start preaching. Now, this is fascinating because who's standing up to preach the first sermon? Peter, what was Peter doing 50 days earlier on Passover? Well, Jesus was being crucified, and Peter was run away because he was a coward. If you remember right, three times Peter denied Jesus. Do you know Jesus? No. Do you know Jesus? No. A little girl comes up. Hey, aren't you with Jesus? I do not know that man. And he cursed him, and he ran away scared. And now 50 days later, who's standing up to preach it's Peter. You want to know what the Holy Spirit can do for you? You want to know why you need the Holy Spirit, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit? Here's the reason why. Because the Holy Spirit will take a coward and make them courageous. A Holy Spirit will take a person of worry and turn them into a witness. The Holy Spirit will be able to change you from the inside out and give you a boldness to be his witness. And he stands up and he preaches the word. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why I told you last week, and I'll say it again. The goal of Pentecost is not to speak in tongues, but to preach the gospel. Many people, they think, oh, Holy Spirit, that must mean talking in tongues. Pentecost, that must be speaking in tongues. Listen, Jesus didn't say, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive tongues. No, he says, you will receive power to be my witnesses, and you will spread the gospel all around the world. And what is Peter doing? He is standing up in power through the Holy Spirit, and he is proclaiming, and he is preaching the gospel. Now listen, I speak in tongues. I believe in tongues. We pray for tongues. Come up front. We'll pray that you might receive it. But, but for us, the point is not just to speak in tongues. The point is that we're filled with power so we can go out and continue to, to preach the gospel to a lost and a dying world. And the last thing they need is just having another good church service. What they need is us to be the witnesses that God has called us to be. And Peter stands up and he proclaims and he preaches the gospel. I love this. It says he's standing. He stood. That, that doesn't mean he just like got up. No. The word in the Greek is histomy, which literally means to take a stand. Peter, the coward who is running from God, is now taking a stand. He's going from being fearful to full of faith. And if I think about what the church in America needs right now, is that we need more Christians who are willing to stand up and stand firm and stand on the gospel message. Because I don't know if you've looked around right now, but it's not going very well for a lot of people. Right? The society and culture that we live in, they're celebrating things that we shouldn't celebrate. They're, they're tolerating things that we shouldn't tolerate. They're, they're, they're throwing parades for things we should be having funerals for. People are leaving the faith. People are criticizing and persecuting and, and ostracizing those who stand for the truth and believe. And many Christians are like Peter, folding like a lawn chair anytime they get criticized. And you're afraid to share your faith. You're afraid to speak out. You're afraid to stand up for your beliefs at work or, or, or to, to post online. Or you're afraid of what other people are going to say or what other people are going to think. And you don't want to make people uncomfortable. You don't want to make things awkward so you don't bring up your faith at the dining room table. You don't talk to your friends about Jesus or invite them to church because you're worried, oh, are they going to accept me? No, listen, they're not here to accept you. They're here to accept Jesus. You preach the gospel. Let him figure it out. If you're nervous about sharing your faith, you're anxious around the gospel message, you know what? You need, to, you need to come be filled with the Holy Spirit. You say, well, pastor, I already speak in tongues. Listen, if you haven't led someone to Jesus in a year, I don't care if you speak in tongues. You're not full of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the power to witness. If you ain't witnessing, you ain't fulfilling your purpose. Right? And so your cup is empty. You need to come down here and you need to get filled back up so you can go back out. And you can begin leading other people to Jesus again. Like the goal of the power of the Holy Spirit is not just so you can speak in tongues. I pray for tongues. It's great, but that's not the point. The point is the proclamation of the gospel. That's what Peter does. He preaches. He stands up and he preaches. 
your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, they need you to take a stand and preach the gospel because heaven and hell are on the line and eternity is at stake. The, the third thing we see is the, the plan of God. We see Pentecost means the, the, the purpose, the point of scripture. We see the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we see the plan of God uh, unveiled through this. It says, but this is what is uttered through the prophet Joel. I told you, you had to quote lots of Bible. I know everyone in this room, your favorite book of the Bible is Joel, right? You guys can quote it, right? You know where he's going, right? There's John 3.16 and there's Joel 3.16. True, that's actually what he's quoting here. He says, and in the last days it shall be. God declares that I will pour my spirit out on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see dreams and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now this is very fascinating because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only fell upon just a select few. But what does it say here? The Holy Spirit will fall upon all. Regardless, man, woman, Greek, Jew, servant, non-servant, old, young, men, women, everybody. The Spirit of God is available for everybody. But, but he says this, he starts talking about signs, prophecy, tongues, interpretation, dreams, visions. You say, well, what does that mean? That's what we're asking, right? What does this mean? Well, last week I introduced you to two theological words. There's going to be even more theology a little bit later in the sermon, so go ahead and put your thinking cap on. The first word was cessationism. The other was continuationism. Now, cessationism means the gifts have ceased. They're no longer available, the sign gifts or the miraculous gifts. And then there's continuationism, which means they still continue to this day. And here at Redemption, we're a continuationist church. And so, so last week I shared a whole bunch of verses that support that doctrine that we would hold to. But here's another one. Peter says, in the last days there will be dreams, visions, and prophecy. He's referring here to spiritual gifts. So the question is, when did the last days begin? He says, in the last days. Well, when did they start? Well, they started at the coming of Jesus for the first time. At Jesus' inauguration was the beginning of the end. Because here's what Jesus says. First sermon out of Jesus' mouth, Mark 1.14. He says this. The time has been fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. First sermons out of Jesus' mouth was the kingdom of God is at hand. It is the beginning of the end. It was the start of the last days. And here we see that the last days of the Old Testament end upon the second coming of Jesus. Okay, when Jesus comes, that was the beginning. When Jesus returns, that is the end. And here he says, on the day of the Lord, you, there, there will be signs, tongues, and prophecy, visions, and dreams, which means when do the gifts cease? At the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus comes back, the gifts will cease. There will be no need for the miraculous signs because everybody has been healed already. There will be no need for tongues in heaven because everybody already speaks in tongues because we're going to be in heaven. Right? So, so when Jesus comes back, that's when the gifts will cease. But until then, what happens? The gifts continue through the church. This is the reason why we reject the doctrine of cessationism here at Redemption. Verse 19. And I will show you wonders in heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the day of the Lord comes. He's referring again to the second coming. So we see the signs of the Spirit and then we see the signs of the end times for that great and magnificent day. It's going to be a great day. I just pray it happens before my daughters start high school. And it shall come to pass, verse 21, he's going to drive it home. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, what is he talking about? Back to the question. They ask this question, what does this mean? What is the meaning of what's happening on Pentecost? What does this mean? And then verse 21, he says, so that anyone who calls upon the Lord may be saved. This, uh, this is crazy. First he's talking about signs and wonders and tongues and dreams and visions. And then all of a sudden the moon's turning to blood and the sun's not shining and everybody's dying. You know, like what, how do these things, these two completely different doctrines, how do they have anything in common? Well, here's the reason. It's because both are miracles. Notice he says here, the signs. He talks about the sign gifts. And then he talks about signs and wonders, not just on the earth below, but also in the sky above. What is it? They're both miracles. And here's the reason why these are important. It's because the miracles confirm the message. Okay, what is a sign? A sign points to something. That's what a sign does. Okay, a sign lets us know, hey, this over here is very important. Pay attention. What does the Bible refer to as a miracle? A sign. What do the miracles point to? They point to confirm the message that Jesus is the Messiah. 
And so, you know, when Jesus was here on this earth, he performed signs and wonders too. Well, why do you think Jesus performed signs and wonders? Because he was a good guy? Because people couldn't afford their health insurance, and so they had to come to him instead of going to their, to, to, to their doctor? Why do you think Jesus performed all these miracles? Just because he felt sorry for them? No, he cast out demons, he performed, he healed. Why? Because he was confirming his message, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is hand. Right? The miracles are designed to confirm the message that was preached. This is why on multiple occasions, whenever Jesus healed somebody, they said, who is this man? Whenever Jesus calmed the storms, they said, who is this man that even the sun, even the winds obey him? Who is this man that even the demons obey him? What is he doing? He is confirming the message that he preached. The science confirmed the message. And when does the message of Jesus end? Until Jesus comes back. Therefore, as long as the message of Jesus continues, the gifts of the Spirit will continue as well. But what does that have to do with the end times? Like all that stuff with the sun falling and crashing into the sky. Well, that's your last chance to get right with God. That in this moment, he has sent the church to be able to catch your attention. But there will come a day whenever he's going to use the heavens to get your attention. He said, if you're not going to listen to the church, maybe you'll listen to the sky and to the moon and to the suns and to the falling stars and to the collapse of the universe. And all of this is just God giving you one more chance, one more opportunity, one last moment to be able to believe in the gospel, to repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. Listen, the miracle confirms the message. And this is the message that we preach here at Redemption, that there is a God who saves. There is a God who transforms and changes lives, that forgiveness is available, that this message is still just as relevant to us today as it was to them 2,000 years ago. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand and believe in the gospel. And the more we focus on preaching that message, the more I believe we'll see miracles happen in this church. Listen, at Redemption, we believe in miracles. We, We believe that God heals. We believe that God delivers. We believe that God brings breakthrough in people's lives. We pray, we trust, and we see God do that all the time. Our first Wednesday prayer nights, last first Wednesday, we had 55 people in this altar for nearly an hour and a half just worshiping and praying for God to move in mighty ways in their life. And we have seen it. We've seen bones be healed. Like one kid, he he got in a car crash, literally broke his arm. Two weeks later, they went back to the doctor to get his cast put on, and the the, the bone was completely completely healed like there was never a break before after a first Wednesday prayer meeting. I mean, we have people on staff who have been healed of 15 years of celiac disease, just healed. We have other people of blood disorders who have been healed. I mean, and we're just seeing a small pocket. I believe we're going to continue to see it increase in what God continues to do. But we believe that. We've seen miracles happen. My wife, she conceived after a prophetic word, after nearly eight years of infertility. Somebody prayed over my wife, spoke a prophetic word. And within the next six months, my wife was pregnant the day before our church had its grand opening. God does miracles. So what does that mean for us here at Redemption? Here's what it means. It means that we continue to preach the message and God will confirm it by sending signs, wonders, and miracles. we got to keep preaching the message, though. But at Redemption, listen, we don't chase signs and wonders. There's some churches where that's what they do. They just keep having church services and signs and wonders and they get all excited about it. Listen, I get excited about it, too, but that's not the point. At Redemption, we don't chase signs and wonders. We chase Jesus and we believe signs and wonders will follow us. That we, we, we chase Jesus, we preach Jesus, we talk about Jesus, we focus on Jesus. We don't glorify ourselves, we glorify Jesus. And the more we focus on Jesus, the more awesome things Jesus is going to do right here in this church. Because he always wants to confirm the message that he preached. What's happening? Peter stands up and he says, all these miracles you're talking about, these only serve to confirm that Jesus is the Messiah. Confirms the message. The miracle confirms the message. That's the plan of God, that people would be saved. The, the third thing is, the fourth thing is this, the person of Jesus. Uh, look what it says here. It, it says, um, it says, verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Okay, he's going to keep preaching. That's why you know this sermon's going over time because Peter keeps preaching, so i got to do my, the same thing, okay. So here's what happens. It says, do you like the Bible? we got some Bible folk in here. Anybody like the Bible? All right, I'm about to read an entire, like, 15 verses of Bible, so hold your breath. Here we go. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with the mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, circle that, we're going to come back to it. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified 
Now, he's about to get really deep into some theology stuff. Okay, we're about to see what is called a Christology. It is the study or the theology of the life of Jesus. Peter is going to give us the first of the New Testament and probably the most clear Christology that we're going to see throughout the rest of the scripture. And it happens in multiple different parts. I'm going to throw a graphic up here on the back of the screen so you can read it as we, you can look at it as we follow along. This is the Christology. It starts with the incarnation or the pre-incarnation, goes to the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and then into the exaltation. Watch, watch how Peter just dives through all of this and starts explaining it. So we see the definite plan, the foreknowledge of God. What is that? That's the pre-incarnation. That's God before humanity existed. Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, in eternity past, fully God, and he existed in full glory. But then it says, was killed by the hands of lawless men, the incarnation, crucifixion. God raised him up, resurrection, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David, now he's going to quote the book of Psalms. For David, the king, David, says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness within your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he was dead and buried and his tomb is with us today. So David, in the book of Psalms, says, you will not let my body see decay. Peter says, his body dead. For 1,500 years, he's rotting in the ground. We know where his tomb is. So David could not be talking about David. There must be something more going on when we read the Bible. There must be something more that was being written. Well, he continues on, and he, he gives an explanation or an exposition of this Old Testament text. Here, here's what he says. For we know where his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants upon the throne. What is that? That's the Messiah. That's the Holy One, the Anointed One, the prophesied coming who is going to save and redeem the world. It was the old covenant that God would send the Messiah through the lineage of David. Another king would sit upon this throne. Bible. Let's go. He says this. He says, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ 1,500 years before Jesus died. David predicted it in the book of Psalms. It says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured this out, that you yourselves are now seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself said, he's quoting more Bible, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool and let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. <sighs> Big Bible verse, breathe in. Breathe out. Okay, so what is he talking about? Remember, the question that they asked is, what does this mean? So what does this have to do, anything about Pentecost? Like, I thought we were talking about tongues, and now all of a sudden he's talking about Jesus and stuff. How, how do these things, these things connect? I want you to look down at verse 22. It says this, as you yourselves know. He points the finger at them. He says, this Jesus, you know him. Which means... It's possible to know about Jesus and not actually know Jesus. Because that's ha what's happening here. They know about Jesus. They, they've seen him for three years preach and teach and heal and cast out demons, the signs and all the miracles that he did. But it didn't matter to them. They still rejected him. They still crucified him. They still turned their back on him. And he says, you know who Jesus is. But you don't know who Jesus is. At the same time, you know, it's possible for people to know who Jesus is and still not know him. This is my fear for many of us who live in Southeast Texas, is that maybe some of you, your same concept of Jesus is no different than what a first century Jew hearing this message on Pentecost would have. Oh, I know who Jesus is. Yeah, I, I've heard all about the stories. I know all about the stories. Like, I could tell you the time that they said that he, he raised a little girl from the dead or he walked on water or he fell to multitude. Yeah, I heard all about Jesus. Right? I even went to Sunday school as a kid. I, I, I got baptized, you know, at my grandmother's church. I went to youth camp one time. I raised my hand for salvation. I know who Jesus is. But yet you don't live for him. And, and you don't follow him. And you don't trust in him or pray to him or spend time with him 
you know about him, but knowing about Jesus isn't the same thing as having a saving relationship with Jesus. And my fear is that many people, they would say, oh, I know who Jesus is, and they would fool themselves into thinking they're going to heaven when they're not. Well, I grew up in church. Listen, you can grow up in church. You can get married in church. You can baptize your baby in church. You can, you, you can have your funeral in church. And you can be buried in a church. And you can wake up still in hell. The devil don't care how much you go to church. As long as you're not in Christ. And, and there's these people who they're like, like, I know who Jesus is. Well, so do they. But they didn't. And that's why Peter has to take this time and explain to them exactly who Jesus is. Because there's people who they think they know who Jesus is, but they don't. They think, oh, I know the stories. But knowing about Jesus is not the same thing as actually knowing him as your savior and the one who you submit your life to. So let me give you a Christology. Study of the life of Christ. Throw that screen back up. Here we go. The first thing he tells us is the incarnation. Or the pre-incarnation. Listen, Jesus is without beginning or end. He is God. Some people say Jesus was a man who became a God. We don't believe that. Right? That, that's heresy. Right? What we believe is that Jesus is the second moon trinity, fully God, from eternity past. Without beginning, without end. And so in the eternity past, what does Peter say? He says, according to the foreknowledge of God. You do know that the cross was not an accident, Right? Like whenever Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God wasn't like, oh no, what are we going to do now? They sinned. Who saw that coming? Nobody? Anybody else? Anybody else? My bad. No. The Bible says that before the foundations of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. That God in his infinite wisdom, he knew that mankind would sin and fall and rebel and he still gave his life for us. That's how much his love is. He knew we would reject him, but he still pursued after us willingly. He made that conscious choice before the foundations of the world that he would send his son. Jesus knew very well what he was getting into when he walked this earth, which leads to the incarnation, that God becomes a man. No other religion teaches this. Every other religion says you can become a God. You are God. But no one else says God became a man. Because every other religion is about how you get to heaven. Christianity is about how heaven came down to earth. Now, you can't make your way to God. God made his way down to you through the incarnation. The word incarnation, incarnate, carne literally means meat. So incarnation, theological word, means God with meat. <laughs> Say, I like my taco with meat. I like my God with meat. <laughs> so, so God becomes a man. He adds to his divinity humanity. He doesn't stop being God, but he wraps humanity around it. Why? Because he, he wants to identify with us. He understands every single aspect of your life. That's why the author of Hebrews says this. He says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weakness. He's gone through everything you go through. He's gone through, he's gone through rejection. He's gone through loneliness, sadness, grief, sorrow, the loss of a loved one, been betrayed. He's been beaten, mocked, spit on. He even died. I love what See, uh, what Charles Spurgeon says this, a Jesus who never cried could never wipe away my tears. Jesus knows exactly what it's like because he's been like us in every single way except for one, without sin. And even in his life, he was rejected and he goes to the cross where he is brutally murdered, he is crucified, hung on a cross. But yet, he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he resurrected. Well, how is that so? Because Romans says the wage of sin is death. Peter says because he was without sin, death could not hold him. The wage of sin is death. You and me and every single person, we have sinned against God. We have committed a holy treason against a living and holy God. And even those here in Texas, if you trespass into somebody else's house, what happens? You get shot, right? When you trespass against God, the wage of sin is death. If you wouldn't allow somebody else to do it, what makes you think that God has to play by different rules than you? Right? The, the, the greater the sin is the greater the person that it's offended. And there is no one greater than God. Therefore, your sin has the most offense with him. You've sinned against God. Not just your neighbor. Not just your spouse. Not just your friend. You've sinned against God. Every sin committed, David says, is a sin against God. The wage of sin is death. So what did Jesus have to do as our substitute, our sacrifice? Jesus gave his life in our place. 
for our sins so that through him we do not have to die. We can now have everlasting life. Jesus paid the penalty. Jesus goes to the cross. He pays the debt. The debt has been paid. The wrath of God has been satisfied. Jesus substitutes himself in your place so that way you do not have to pay the penalty for your sins. Jesus has paid it all. But that's not the end of the story. Then he resurrects. Why is the resurrection so important? Because if Jesus never resurrected, you're still dead in your sins on your way to hell. Because it's not just the death that saves us, it is the resurrection that saves us into a new life. Because Jesus rose from the grave, he conquers Satan, sin, hell, death, and the grave. And Romans chapter 6 says he resurrects us just like him. And he resurrects us into a newness of life. Where the old is gone, the new has come. Your sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. That you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And this is what Jesus pays through his life, through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection. But that's not all. There's more. Yes, much more. The ascension. The story keeps going because Jesus, 40 days later, after evidencing his resurrection, he ascends to heaven. Why did Jesus leave? Why did Jesus go up to heaven? Here's the reason why. Because he was going to send the Holy Spirit to be your helper. Jesus says this, it is better for me to go away so that the helper may come. Why is it better for Jesus to be gone? Well, because Jesus, after his incarnation, he is limited to only one place at a time. One time, one space. Even in his resurrected body, he still has a physical body. He cannot be everywhere all the time. So he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell inside every single believer to lead us, to guide us, to direct us, to empower us to be his witnesses. And now everywhere there is a local believer and everywhere there is a local church, there is a local body of Christ doing the very same ministry that Jesus did while he was here on this earth. It is the ascension. And then it says this, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. What is that? It is the exaltation. So what does all of this mean? Well, it goes back and Peter says, what you are seeing and what you are hearing, this is what this means, that Jesus is king. That he's been exalted at the right hand of the Father. That he lives and he changes lives. That Jesus is not dead, but Jesus is alive. And Jesus is still changing lives. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The one without any end. And he, this Jesus will save your soul. What does it mean? It means that Jesus is Lord. Which means you and me, we have to make a decision. Is he our Lord? Is he your Lord? Because here's the reality is Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He's either the Lord of everything. What does it mean to be a king? It means you're the king. You're the Lord. And you're either Lord of all of my life or you're, you're not Lord of anything in my life. You can't just say, God, I'll give you some of me. You have to say, God, I'll give you all of me. You can't just say, God, I'll give you some of my sins, the really bad ones that I don't want to keep doing, but not the, not the ones that I like. No, it's all his. He's Lord of all. Because the difference between is knowing about Jesus versus having a saving relationship with him. Is he Lord of your life? Is he Lord of your, your home? Is he Lord of your schedule, your activities, your hobbies? Is he the Lord of your, your mornings? Is he Lord of your evenings? Is he, is he the Lord of your family? Is he the Lord of your children? God, I, I trust you with everything. I trust you with my kids. I trust you with my marriage. In our, in, our, in our society, sometimes we have to make it even a little bit more, more, more clear. Say, God, I trust you with my addictions. God, I surrender that to you. God, I trust you with my gender. Surrender, I surrender that to you. I trust you with my singleness. I trust you with my marriage. I trust you with my sexuality. Lord, I surrender. I submit all of this under your lordship. Because I want you to be the Lord of all of my life. I don't want to just know you. I, I want to I know you as my savior. I want you to see that he, he says this here. He says, this Jesus is now your Christ and your Lord. 
What does that word Lord mean? It means king. He's the king. You don't get to argue with the king. He's the king. But then it says this, he's the Christ. What does that word Christ mean? It means savior. It means the holy one. It means the anointed. It means the promised one. And I want you to see this. This is how, this is how big God is. Because right now some of you are like, okay, but you don't, you don't understand me. That's great and all about Jesus. But what does it do with me? Here's what you got to see. Is that Jesus is Lord of all. He is the creator of the universe. He is big without beginning or end. He's big. But he's also a savior, which means our Lord Jesus got small. So he could be close. So he could be near that he can care. Yes, he hung stars in the universe and galaxies and skies and, and at the creation of all things, he dug into the ocean and formed the Marianas Trench. But at the same time, he knows every single hair that's on your head. And he knows your name. And he loves you. And he cares for you. relationship with you. What God does this? What God responds to his creation this way? Does it make sense that God would become a man, suffer and die for us so that way we can live with him? He's worthy to be your Lord. He's good. And he loves you so incredibly much. What's the whole purpose of Pentecost? Verse 21. So that everyone who hears and calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. I love, I love this. I just love this. Listen to this. See, some people are like, but not me. You don't know my story. You don't know what I'm going through. Listen, I don't have to. Because here's what Peter does on Pentecost. He says, you killed Jesus. Come and be forgiven. This man you killed welcomes you to be forgiven. That's the God we serve. We kill him. He died for us. He resurrects and forgives us of our sins. This is the God that we serve. This is the meaning behind Pentecost. That people can be saved. Which leads to the fifth and the final point. The path of salvation. So what does this mean for us as a church? Well, if we go back to the, verse 21, it says we shall be saved. That everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who can be saved? Everyone. Anyone. Not most. All, uh, all not, not almost all, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can, shall be saved. But you have to call upon the name of the Lord. So what is our job as the church? What does this have to do with us? Well, here's the reason. It's because just like Peter, we have the path of salvation. We have Jesus. We have the path. And it's our job to show the world how they can be saved. That's our job. Our job as a church is to show the world how they might be saved. We know the way, guys. We need to lead others to following Jesus as well. What is the purpose of Pentecost? What is the meaning behind this? That the church would share the gospel with others. That's why I said it's not about speaking in tongues. It's about preaching the gospel. And that message started 2,000 years ago. And it continues on to this very day. The meaning of Pentecost is that we have a call towards personal evangelism. What is Peter doing? He's, he's evangelizing. And what are you to do with your life and what God has done for you? You're, you're to evangelize, to reach the lost, to speak, to preach the gospel. So if we circle all the way back to Acts 1, we got to step back and get the context. What's the context? It's, 40, it's, it's 50 days after Pentecost. The context is for the last 10 days, they've been praying and they've been praying and they've been praying because Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. In Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, the power comes down and they're filled with boldness and they continue to preach 
Listen, here's what we need to understand is that as Christians, God's dream for us is not just to have church. Like when we get to heaven, God's going to be like, well, how many small groups did you go to? And how many church services did you attend? You got perfect attendance in 2023. Mark that down. That's not what he's going to say. Because the goal for us is not just to have great church services, but to be a great church. In order for us to be a great church, we have to take the message from the upper room and bring it out to the streets. Like the upper room shouldn't stay in the upper room. The upper room moments lead to Pentecostal movements. Peter had an encounter with God in that upper room, and he couldn't contain it. He bust open the door, and he ran down into the streets, and he began telling everybody that there is a Jesus that saves. There is a life that you can have forevermore. There is a healer. There is one who forgives. There is purpose. Come and hear the message of Jesus. That's what we should do. Not just sit up in our upper rooms with all of our great church services. We should go out and tell the world that there is a God who saves. Powerful experiences lead to personal evangelism. So my question for you is this. Who are you going to tell about Jesus this week? Who are you going to sit down and pray and say, I would love to be able to tell you about Jesus. Can, I would love to invite you to church. I, I want to invite you to my small group. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? Do you have any questions? Can I tell you my testimony and my story? Can I tell you what Jesus has done in my life so he could do the same thing for you? Because powerful experiences, guys, I love that we've had some powerful experiences in our church. And I believe this is just the beginning. But a powerful experience should lead to a personal evangelism by sharing your faith with others. The upper room cannot stay in the upper room. It must move out into the streets, into our home, and into our communities. And what happens when it does? Look at verse 41. If I could jump down and take Pastor Lance's message from next week. Look what it says. It says this. And those who heard this message, they believed. And they were baptized. And 3,000 souls were added in a single day. 3,000 people became Christians just like that. The church was born. This is fascinating. Let's go all the way back. Exodus chapter 34. Moses comes down with the law. And because of the rebellion of the people, the ground opens. 3,000 people in Exodus 34 were killed because they refused to follow God. Here we are, Acts chapter 2. What happens? The spirit comes down. The message has changed. 3,000 people added in a single day. God is reversing the curse of the fall and, ex and entering into the new covenant that we have with Jesus as our Lord, our Savior, our God and King. And he's saying everybody's welcome and everybody's invited and everybody can change and everybody can hear this message. Everybody can come and anybody can be saved. Some people hear this like 3,000 people in a single day saved. Is that possible? Well, it's in the Bible, which means we believe it. But it's more than that. We believe he can do it for us. We believe he can do it for your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates. We believe he can do it for anybody and everybody. We believe if he did it for them, he could do it for us, and he can do it again.